If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. There have been many great documentary filmmakers over the years, but of those at work today, one of the undoubted bosses is Nick Broomfield. Often controversial, always challenging, Nick has covered subjects from serial killers, Hollywood madams, to African Union nationalists. He's perhaps best known for Kurt and Courtney, an incendiary investigation into the events surrounding Cobain's death, which Love was none too happy about. We will, of course, hear plenty more about that shortly. I'm Edith Bowman, and you're listening to Soundtracking, a weekly podcast about the sounds of screen. Now, normally we play relevant musical extracts throughout the entirety of the conversation, but given the nature of Nick's work, it's a more conventional interview on this occasion. But there is plenty of music still to discuss, not least because his latest project, Whitney, Can I Be Me, is all about Whitney Houston, who was found dead in a hotel room in 2012. Made in collaboration with filmmaker Rudy Dolezal, Can I Be Me is scored by Nick Laird Close. So it's his cues you'll hear whilst we discuss Nick's thoughts on the troubled superstar. Nick Broomfield, welcome to Soundtracking, sir. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Let's start at the now. I mean, there's so much to talk about. We're never going to get through everything, but we'll start with the now. Whitney, uh, Can I Be Me? Were you a Whitney fan going into this? I really was not. Uh, I knew very little about Whitney, uh, only the most obvious things, that she was the first major black crossover artist who had an enormous fan base with a white audience. In those days, you know, the record business, there was a black division and a white division, and they talked about moving an artist from, I guess, the black division to the white division, which is so, yeah, so crazy. And so descriptive of America at that time. And I guess Whitney embodied that, and she paid a huge price for being the first black crossover artist. And so I guess that was the starting point. Do you think that was the start of her demise, really, do you think? Well, I think she was put out there as the American princess, kind of like American royalty. Yeah. In fact, she was from Newark, which was a real kind of ghetto with the worst race riots outside Los Angeles. And to her friends, she was called Nippy. And she was very funny and she was very down to earth and just wanted to have a good time. She wasn't at all like the Whitney Houston in the, in the gowns and all the rest of it. So when she met, for example, with Bobby Brown, people thought, what's she doing with this guy? He's from the streets. You know, why is our American princess with Bobby Brown? Of course, they were from exactly the same background and they had this chemistry because they absolutely knew each other. So I think it made her life difficult because then the white audience who thought she was the American princess got all judgmental. Yeah. Whenever she didn't live up to their expectations, she was put down for it. And in fact, that was the person who she was all along. 
When you start a project like this, the music is obviously such a big part of her mm -hmm. world. And when you think about how you're going to include and weave music within the documentary, was that an important thing to kind of work out at the start? I'm sure that's what a lot of people would have done. But I'm very ignorant about music. So I had a wonderful music clearance person who is an enormous Whitney fan. He cleared the music and he knew exactly how to clear the music. It took about six months and we were probably able to clear about 14 of her major songs. And then I got to know her music in that process. Yeah. And also I had the advantage of seeing these incredible performances that she was doing on stage. And I think it was the performances almost more than the songs that pulled me in. I think it was seeing Whitney out there singing, giving everything she had to every song. probably a much more passionate way than she did in the recording studio. I think that really is what pulled me in and I think a lot of the high points of the film are her performances. Ladies, you sing a song, this is your song, come on. Sugar, put fire 
guess it's the closest thing to the real her, isn't it, when you see her with an audience? Because, you know, all those videos of those hits and stuff, she's being a character, isn't she? She's yeah. playing a role, whereas when she's on stage, like, you know, she never does the same performance twice. But you're, you're really seeing her emotion come through in those songs, and so it's so pure and true. Yeah, and, and I think by 99, she was somewhat straining to hit those notes. She already wasn't really looking after herself. And I think it's that vulnerability you see out there too. It's like, it's not like she's just completely polished and pushing it off. Yeah. She is working. It's like everything she's got is doing is doing that. And um, I think that's what's so moving. I think she just pulls at your heartstrings. Did you um, get really involved with his footage? You know, he'd kind of started wanting to make this documentary about her and it, it never happened, it never came to fruition. Yeah, I mean, I'd been working on this film for a year before I saw Rudy's footage. So I'd done all the interviews. Yeah. Then I saw this incredibly intimate backstage footage, like 100 hours that Rudy had been shooting over wow. the years. Backstage with her, backstage with Bobby Brown and her, with Robin Crawford. In fact, the only footage I've seen of Robin Crawford, who was Whitney's best friend that she grew up with in Newark, was in Rudy's footage. And Robin Crawford gives this very incredible interview about Whitney and growing up with Whitney. And you see the two of them together. And everyone had said, you know, the person who really knew Whitney best and who supported Whitney was kind of Whitney's guardian angel was Robin Crawford and so Rudy's film had this footage and I was just like so fascinated to see Robin and I think in many ways Robin is the heroine of the film and you just love her to pieces and you can see how much she loves Whitney and how much Whitney loves her I think that was the golden nugget in Rudy's footage too it is that thing where you kind of, you know, the, the emotion that you attach to it, someone watching it, this is fact, this isn't fiction, so you can't write the ending of it, but you want that happy ending and you want Robin not to leave to look after, you know, it's <laughs> no. that kind of weird want that you have, you know, you know the end of the story, you know the, the sad events that happen and you just wish that... You Robin wish that, had stayed. Yeah. I mean, I did think it was very generous of Bobby Brown to say, because, you know, Bobby Brown and Robin Crawford were both sort of fighting for Whitney's love and yeah. I think they had a number of physical fights too but at the end Bobby Brown said had Robin not been driven out of Whitney's life and been around at the end he thought you know Whitney would still be with us which I thought was a really big statement yeah. from him and you know was generous and accurate and Patty Howard who was one of Whitney's closest friends who I became very close to making the film said the same thing you know Robin was such a brick such a support yeah. for Whitney you know and they had such an amazing relationship and I think once Robin had gone they lost touch or they were both too proud probably to go back you know admit that they needed each other yeah music with documentaries is a bit more of a general question with this film for example there's so much Whitney music in there in terms of right. when you think about the 
other side of it if you want score in there or if you want original music yeah. is that quite a specific thing to think about with this when there is so much music within the film yeah i mean what, what you tend to do when you're editing is you kind of put a temp score in yeah you sort of borrow your favorite bits of music <laughs> from other films which yeah. you know you can never license everyone does this it's so funny it's so <laughs> funny and generally it's it's mark hofflin was the w one who did this more than me and then at the end of it you're like you don't really know what you're doing um i worked with this amazing composer called nick leg Clouse. i don't know if you know him he's got a band and stuff yeah and we called nick up and said uh i think it was like an impossible thing. Like, you've got three weeks to do the score. Uh, can you start on it today? And Nick was like, Nick is wonderful because he's, he's got, first of all, an amazing sense of humor. And he's completely over the top and ridiculous in his enthusiasm for everything. He said, Whitney! He said, Whitney! Wow! Well, I can't turn Whitney Houston down. Who could turn Whitney Houston? I mean, that's, he's, he's called Nick Leg Clues, but everyone calls him Nick L Loud Trousers. <laughs> You know, he's, complete, he's yeah. one of these kind yeah, of comic, yeah. comic <laughs> cartoon characters. Anyway, Nick was in London and he would send us the music. So we would sort of get it in, you know, his late afternoon. Yeah. And we would just send notes back by email mainly saying more emotion. We love it up to here, but more emotion, more emotion. Yeah. And Nick would then just sort of pump it up and send it back again. When do you start thinking about music for your films on that side of things and the score? Is it is it in the editing process? Is it it's always that sort well, of Well, I think you need to have a really good sense of what the film is. Mm. Films get a character and a very definite tone, and then they also work as a kind of they're different chapters in the story. And obviously, you need a score that builds to a kind of a climax, and also. Maybe you have a repeating theme that is the heart of that particular person, that artist, you know, yeah. and he had this, I can't really imitate it, but he had this, it was like the kind of the heart of Whitney that yeah. was moving through her life, which I thought was so brilliant. And it kind of takes you, pushes you into the film. I think it's a wonderful score that just worked completely. And he was actually still working when we were actually mixing the film. Wow. He was still sending stuff through, <laughs> like the whole end title sequence and yeah. stuff we didn't have. We, originally, we had Whitney's music there, and then it was like we had to pay twice as much for the music if it was used on titles. You yeah. know, you, there were all these different things. Weird, that yeah. we were, it was going to cost us another 30,000 quid, which we didn't have. So Nick suddenly had to do another three minutes of music. And then the, the end title music was so good that we moved it around creatively in the mix.
I think it's some of Nick's best soundtrack music, actually. You know, his score is so moving, and you can feel it take you yeah. in. Because obviously you couldn't have a competing voice with yeah. Witness, you know, that would have been ridiculous. Yeah. But he, he did something that really gets to your heart in the same way that I think her voice does. What did you ask him apart from saying it was Whitney? You know, what was your conversation you had before he started? What did you... I probably mumbled about, <laughs> you know, oh, there's a temp score here, don't bother really listening to it. We want something that kind of gets to the heart and the soul of Whitney and, you know, drives the narrative. You, you can't have anything that is too much, mm-hmm. that interferes. You know, you can't have something that's going... You know, like it's yeah. going to pull you out of the movie. You've got to get something that sort of grabs you and pushes you through the film. I'd worked with Nick before on another film called uh, Battle for Haditha, and he'd done a brilliant score on that, much more Eastern. And he'd been so adaptable, he'd got hold of all these Eastern instruments. I don't know what they're called, you know, but he'd got people who, from like Iraq and stuff, musicians, and put them all together and (laughs) those, you know, kind of great stuff. Yeah, real authenticity. Yeah, yeah, much more like a kind of Syriana soundtrack. Yeah. And he'd done that so brilliantly. So, And I think he'd even got David Gilmore doing little bits on it too because they're good friends so he was just such fun and he came over to Berlin we we mixed that film in Berlin and you know Nick is just up for anything he's got this incredible enthusiasm he's like wow we're gonna you know he's just so enthusiastic you kind of think why aren't I so enthusiastic you know listening to him
At 8.40 a.m. on April the 8th, 1994, Kurt Cobain's body was found. The lead singer of the group Nirvana had taken his own life, shooting himself in the head. Yeah, by happiness. He was the center of attention. He's very nice, very well-mannered he was. You know, the world's going to explode any day. We're doing this film about Kurt Cobain. Good grief. Do you want to shut the camera off, please? Courtney has had a reputation for being extraordinarily violent. How did you and Courtney originally meet? She came up and threw a drink in my face. Kurt was like totally a listener. He's one of the few people I've ever met that actually listened to what you had to say. Well, I don't think he killed himself. I think that somebody killed him. Is your daughter, someone's father, own father, is saying that maybe his daughter is a, is a murderer? I don't know if she works inside. I've got an inside track on her mind. I told her that from the beginning. I'll keep kicking your ass. If I wanted to hire somebody to kill somebody, El Duce would be the man. You buy me a beer, I might do some more talking. Yeah, you'd be liable to do it like that. We're talking about evidence indicating it would have been impossible for him to pick up the shotgun. As far as you're concerned, you know, you want to find court and love. End of story. Can I talk a bit about Kurt and Courtney and yeah, the music associated yeah. with that and stuff? Because you'd assume that it would be full of Nirvana and love and Courtney songs and mm. stuff. But I guess that was never going to be the case or was it? Or how did that work? In the same way with Whitney in terms of the subject matter of the film and what it's about. But then I love that it wasn't. Yeah, well, I, I think I was set out probably to do much more of a music film. Rick Rubin, actually, who I think was running Atlantic Records at that time, suggested to me to do the film. We were good mates at that point. He loved the Heidi Fleiss film, and you know, one film always comes out of another. And he yeah. said, I know, you should look into this kind of thing. So originally, I thought it was going to be much more of a music film. And then Whitney kind of, you know, I, I don't know what went on, but she kind of not only stopped me getting any music, but also got Courtney. MTV. Yeah. yeah, Courtney did, sorry. Yeah. To, you know, pull the funding out of the film. So she became so much a part of what was happening. She became the film. I either had to stop making the film, which is what she wanted, yeah. or I was going to define her and the film through her actions. Yeah. You know, so I kind of took a step back and just put all her shenanigans in. <laughs> you know, like, you can't have this photograph, you can't have that. I'm sending a private detective around to intimidate all Kurt's friends so they don't take part in the film. So I put all that in. I thought, wow, this is incredible portrait of Courtney, and I'm just going to put it in. And I'm just going to make this sort of diary of what it is that's happening while I'm trying to make this film. So the film kept changing. But that's one of the wonderful things about documentaries. You you can make what's out there. Mm. And I was making it for the BBC, and they were just very... There was Nick Fraser at the BBC. He's kind of an intellectual and was really into this story. You know, I'd call him up on sometimes on the freeway, and Nick would be, oh, you know, he'd come up with a lot of suggestions. And, he, you know, in the end, he said, this is really the subtext of the film. It's about, like, free speech. It's like you're trying to be closed down. And also, a lot of the American corporations have so many different interests. Like, I often work for HBO, too. But HBO wouldn't touch the film because Time Warner owned Kurt's publishing rights. So they were like, we've got so much money tied up in yeah. Kurt Cobain that there's no way we're going to put money into one of your films because you're probably going to 
trash the whole thing and cause chaos. And we don't want to be, you know, Time Warner going to bonk us if they lose that. So you can see how this horrible corporate control of yeah. everything actually really interferes with the stories you can tell for a particular network, which is so what you wouldn't expect in a democracy, yeah. you know, in a country where there's supposed to be free speech and free... So it became this bigger issue. And I think part of the exciting thing of making documentaries is locating those bigger issues and using them to your advantage rather than being done in by them. You know, so the film just kept coming bigger and bigger and more and more loopy, actually more and more crazy. I just thought, how am I... I also had terrible problems, which is how to pay my crew at the end of every week because all my funding was getting cut off slowly. So it was kind of a nightmare too. But I think became a very kind of definitive and interesting film of Kurt and his world and the relationship with Courtney and obviously very truthful to the experience of making the film. Well, I just think that the whole the idea of documentary is, you know, having an idea of what you want to make a film about, but you have to let the film speak. That is the exciting thing. Yeah. You, you don't know the film going in, which is why, you know, now they have all these crazy pitch forums where you're supposed to go in and pitch, you know, and people say, what's your third act? You know, what's the third <laughs> act in your third three-act structure? And, you know, these poor filmmakers, you can see them shaking sometimes with nervousness, pitching these ideas. And I always think, you shouldn't know what the third act is. If you know what the third act is, you shouldn't be making a documentary. You should be making a feature film or something. And the whole point of documentary is you don't know the story. Yeah, you've done the research. You kind of know what interviews and stuff have been done before. But yours has got to be completely new. And that's the exciting thing about doing it. And how did you decide on how you would incorporate music within the documentary? Well, I, there were some of the other bands that were around that influenced Kurt. Yeah. That um, I got some of their music in it. And there was this guy called Dylan Coulson, who was Kurt's sort of best friend, drug buddy. So I put some of his music in because yeah. I felt that it w at least was descriptive of the kind of mood and thing that... And the soundscape so much of their lives yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah and there's definitely a Seattle sound. was very influenced by the Marvins. They were like very, very close. And so we met a lot of those people. We didn't put all their music in, but mm -hmm. yes, yeah, very much trying to get the atmosphere of where he grew up. And in this place, Aberdeen, where his house was, you know, we saw the bridge that he used to spend his time as a kid under the bridge. I think he was a very lonely kid. Because when you make these films, you want to inhabit 
the atmosphere of the person. Yeah. You know, and it was very dramatic, very <clears throat> soulful, and a lot of it was pretty heavy up there. I like it because Kurt Cobain wouldn't be listening to his own music. Yeah, so it exactly. felt more like what he would have been listening to or what would have been playing in his room or in a hotel if he went into it and stuff. So that's yeah. what I loved about it. It felt like the soundscape of the time in his world. Yeah, and Seattle is a very definite place. And, you know, I was there just when it was the rainy season. You know, you kind of wouldn't mind a bit of heroin yourself just to sort of get through the day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like rainy, grey. Every time you go out, you get wet. It was kind of depressing. And you can see how the music, incredible music, but you can see how it was so influenced by the environment. You know, like bands like Screaming Trees and obviously Pearl Jam and Napalm Beach. Yeah, yeah. And Napalm Beach had sort of kind of given up. They were breeding rats, I remember, and they had no money. And we put some money so they into the meter so they have electricity and cook. And they were like, oh, man, we're so grateful to you, you know, putting money in the meter. It was like that. Wow. Do you know what I mean? And we filmed it all, but it was obviously such a different film. We had some of their music. Courtney and you really felt like you were on that journey with you. You kind of look over your shoulder every now and again just to check she wasn't there. It was there a again. roller coaster <laughs> yeah. ride. Yeah, yeah, you must have needed a holiday after that one. I was and actually <laughs> I remember it was Valentine's Day and uh, Angelica Courtney sent you a Valentine's card. <laughs> yeah, well, I ended up dancing next to her in this room, you know where it's like Angelica Houston and her husband, who was a famous sculptor, gave a big party in his studio down in Venice, California, yeah. which is where I was living. Lots of people were invited, and everyone had sort of thrown their handbags and coats in the middle of the room, more or less, and were dancing around it in crazy fashion. And I, I looked there, and there was Courtney. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. You know, I mean, literally, I because, you know. How long after was that? You know, when it was really bad, when she'd tried, it had been chucked out of Sundance. It was kind of like a fiasco and it was in all the newspapers and it was just traumatic. And there she was right next to me. And I was like, because I'd interviewed people who'd said that, that, you know, she'd tried to beat one journalist up with an Oscar and another person she dragged across the room with with their hair. For, you know, I didn't have hair that was long enough to do any dragging. But 
But I thought, wow, supposing we get into it, there's no way. I mean, even if I don't get beaten up, if I retaliate in any way, I'm going to look terrible. Yeah. And I just kind of left the room thinking, what a dreadful coward you are. But at the same time, I literally just felt the blood draining out of my body. I thought, oh, no, Valentine's Day is going to be another massacre. It's going to be, you know, I was like, my heart was. Uh, so that that was kind of funny. I have this crazy image in my head now of you and Courtney doing the kind of John Travolta <laughs> Saturday Night Fever yeah. dance together. That's what we should have done. That's what you would have done. That humor, I'm sure, would have been the best way around it. But I don't think I, was, I don't think I had the largesse to quite get there. Man, but I, I wouldn't say enjoyed making the film. I'm glad you got it out. Yeah, no, I was really pleased I got it out. And I think it was one of my best films because it was so out there. I remember showing it to, you know, one of my distributors and she said, I don't think this film's ever going to get out, Nick. It's a train wreck. It's just too much. But I think it's great you made it and don't feel bad if it never goes anywhere, which is obviously pretty depressing. Isn't it? It's like, thanks a lot. I spent a year on this. I've almost sort of lost my life a couple of times. And And so many death threats. I know. Yeah. So it was a very extreme experience. But, you know, I'd also learned a lot on Mm. it. And I think it's still a very definitive film about Kurt and his life. Yeah, I, I do too. Can you remember when you were getting into film, started watching film, mm. of those moments where music really impacted you within that kind of world? I became really good friends with G.A. Pennybaker, who did Don't Look Back, which is probably my favourite music film, which I think is just so amazing. You know, Dylan at his peak and yeah. on that tour. and you, Also, Britain is so amazing in that film. You know, yeah. all the kids in Liverpool are so sweet and it's such a great time. And I think it's a beautifully shot by Penny. And then Joan Churchill, who I worked with for years and years and years, who literally taught me how to make films because she was so much better than I was. She had shot a lot on Gimme Shelter. shot that famous shot you know the story was they're doing the film for the Maisels and the night before the concert they'd gone out onto the hill where everybody was and the Hells Angels wouldn't let the crew back into the compound they were sort of like Maisel schmazels you know you ain't coming back in so yeah. they all slept out there and someone had laced their coffee with acid in the morning and you know when Joan lifted her light meter this rainbow came out of the light meter and she was like, ah, shit. And she then spent the next (laughs) seven or eight hours under the stage holding on to the legs of this other DP who was filming, having these terrible hallucinations. Apparently it was really bad acid, which is, I think, why the concert went so bonkers. It was bad acid and everyone was having a bad time. And just when she was coming down from it, she got up on the stage, got her camera, and she did that really the shot of the film where there's this guy on the other side of the stage who's like obviously having the worst trip in his life, holding onto the top of his head like this. 
and Jagger is coming in and out of the frame, but the camera's not on Mick. It's on this person. Yeah. And it's sort of at the end of the shot, one of the Hell's Angels comes up to him and just bashes him on the head. And it sort of summarized the whole, whole thing. event. So I just think that's a remarkable piece of film. You know, that was actually done for, yeah, yeah that was done with for the Maisels. And uh, I think it's such a definitive film of that time. Yeah. You know, I think they've re-released it and stuff. And also, I think the Isle of Wight film, Leonard Cohen in that is so remarkable, the, the new re-release of that, all the stuff that was going on there. There are these concerts that are so incredible, descriptive of a time in our lives, you know. Yeah. Nick, I could talk to you for hours. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, congratulations on Whitney, Can I Be Me? And I very much look forward to whatever's next. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Nick. Thank lovely you. talking to you. Suzanne takes you down to her place near the river. You can hear the boats go by. You can spend the night beside her. And you know she's half crazy, but that's why you wanna be there. And she feeds you tea and oranges that come all the way from China. And just when you mean to tell her that you have more love to give her, then she gets you on her wavelength. And she lets the river answer that you've always been her lover. And you want to travel with him, and you want to travel blind, and you know she will find you, for she's touched your perfect body with her mind. Live at the Isle of Wight in 1970, that's Suzanne by Leonard Cohen. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Nick Broomfield. My huge thanks to Nick for taking the time to talk to us and sharing so many great stories. Whitney, Can I Be Me is on general release now. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our 40-odd episodes. Guests include Edgar Wright, James Mangold, Ang Lee and Ron Howard. And please do, if you can, follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're at Soundtracking UK. Next up is composer Nicholas Brutel, who scored the Oscar-winning Moonlight. And I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.